Not all kick drums are created equal, and one of the most important things governing the sound of a drum, be it snare, tom, or kick, is actually the drum's size. Kick drums range in size from a punchy 20 inches to a comically huge 24, 26, or 28 inches. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and as always, I'm so glad that you joined me to talk about music played with 20-inch kick drums, and pretty much just that, because I only have a 20-inch kick drum. Strong Songs is a one-man operation totally supported by listeners like you. Thank you all so much if you support Strong Songs over on Patreon. And did you know that if you become a patron, you can get access to bonus minisodes that I make where I talk about extra stuff that I didn't have time to get into on the show. On this episode, the mailbag is open yet again, and it's time to answer a whole bunch more of your most burning musical questions. We've got all kinds of counting questions, questions about mystery sounds, questions about singing and vocal technique. So many questions, so little time. So hey, let's get into it. everyone and here we are for another strong songs mailbag i am excited as always to get into your questions and if you would like to send a musical question my way send it to listeners at strongsongspodcast.com i read all my email and i have a huge mailbag a sort of huge hopper of questions that i'm always sort of scrolling through before i make each one of these episodes picking a nice mix of questions that'll let me hit a variety of topics so our first question is actually one that i have an answer for but i'm not super confident in my answer so i'm going to explain what i think this sound is but i'm also going to open it up to all of you to write in and let me know if you think uh if you think that i'm right if you agree or if you have some alternate theories So Sammy writes, hey, Kirk, do you have any ideas on how they make that howling sound at the beginning of Guns N' Roses' Welcome to the Jungle? It kind of sounds like someone screaming. Well, let's listen to the sound in question. So yeah, what is that sound? So like I said, I do have a guess, and it's based on the fact that there's really only one member of Guns N' Roses capable of making a sound that's anywhere in the ballpark of that kind of howling sound, and that person is Axl Rose, and I think that this is Axl Rose making a pretty wild vocal sound. So that's the best I can come up with. I've run this by a few musician friends just to be like, hey, what do you think this is? And uh, and most of them kind of agree just because it doesn't sound like an electric guitar. It does sound distorted and filtered. It sounds like there's some sort of a filter on it. It's running through some sort of processing. There might even be some kind of tape delay, like a really light tape delay going on that I'm kind of hearing. But what I'm really just hearing is this big sort of gliss, you know, oh. 
Now, that's just my approximation. Axl Rose has a pretty freakish voice, and he can do some pretty wild stuff with air pressure, especially in his upper register. That guy has a scream like nobody else. I don't really know how he does it, but he can do some pretty cool stuff with applying sort of surgical pressure at various points to his voice. He might even be able to sing multiphonics because I do hear a couple of pitches here, and this could be something that he's doing acoustically, but it also sounds like it's filtered or kind of distorted. And if you put that sound through some sort of processing, through some sort of a filter that's that's sort of hooding off some of the EQ and maybe a delay, you can get a sound that's not too dissimilar from that. So yeah, that's my guess that this is Axel making a pretty wild sound that was made even wilder via some sort of post-processing, but I'm open to hearing what you all think it is. So yeah, listeners at strongsongspodcast.com, let me know. All right, our next question comes from Amy. Amy writes, I'm diving back into old games via the Nintendo Switch, and I just played a round of Mario Kart 64. As I'm listening to the race end music on the results screen, I cannot for the life of me figure out the time signature. I hear the sizzle staying steady, but I also know it's not quite 5-4, which means something eight. As a music major and music educator in my mid-30s, I am embarrassed and infuriated that I can't figure it out. I'm sure the internet has the answer, but I am refusing to look it up out of pride. Counting wizard, please advise. Well, this is the first time someone has invoked my formal title of counting wizard, but sure, I am happy to help. I love this music. Mario Kart always has great music, and this really brought back a lot of memories listening to it. This is the end race results screen music from Mario Kart 64, composed by Kenta Nagata. So this is a tricky song. It's a tricky song to count in a number of different ways, and it's also just in an odd meter, so it's not surprising that you might struggle to count it. It's taken me a little while to really get into the finer points of the groove, even though I figured out the time signature pretty quickly. So let's start with the time signature, and then we'll get into some of the kind of cool things that Nagata is doing with the groove on this song. So the time signature that we are in here is 11-8. That means there's 11 eighth notes in each bar. And that's an odd number of eighth notes. 11-8 is definitely not the kind of time signature you see just everywhere. We've talked about a lot of odd meters on the show, and I would say that 11 is one of the hardest ones to keep track of for a number of reasons. So when I talk about an odd meter, I am talking about any type of counting that has an odd number of beats in a bar. And in this case, 11, that's kind of a lot. And we're talking about eighth notes, so it's also happening sort of quickly. So like I've talked about in the past, the way to count this is not to try to count to 11 every time. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. You kind of get bogged down in syllables, if nothing else. The way to do it is to break it up into smaller collections of beats and then combine those into a sort of pattern that repeats, which is actually pretty easy to do on this song once you get your head around the fundamental groove. So Amy, you mentioned focusing on the sizzle, and that's the hi-hat pattern that's going. When I talk about sizzle, when we talk about that on this show, that's the thump, the pop, and the sizzle. The kick drum is the thump, the pop is the snare, and the sizzle is something like the hi-hats. In this case, the sizzle is doing 16th notes, 
really consistent 16th notes, and the sizzle is very consistent. But I would actually say that if you're going to figure out the counting for this, you don't want to start by focusing on the drums, which may feel counterintuitive, but actually, a lot of times it can be easier to figure out odd meter counting by focusing on the bass instead, and that's what we're going to do here. The thing you really want to get into your head is this rhythmic figure that's played on the bass that I'm now playing on the piano. That's what you gotta get in your head, and the counting figure for that is four, then three, then four. You could also think of it as two, two, three, two, two, which is a more subdivided version that might be easier for some people. I'll count it as four, then three, then four. So four plus three is seven, plus another four is eleven, that gets us to eleven eight, and you're gonna wanna count it as a group of four, a group of three, and then a group of four. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, one, two, three, four. So I'm going to break down how you can kind of think of that, how you can conceive of it, but first let me just count along with the recording so you can hear how that four, three, four counting works. Here we go. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, one, two, three, four. So that's all well and good, but you can slow this whole thing down and kind of really get your arms around it, which I would sense, especially for you as a music teacher, would probably be helpful. The way to do that is just going to be to slow it down. You kind of start with it nice and slow and just sing that bass line to yourself until you get comfortable feeling it. Bum, 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 bum. And once you kind of hear that, you'll start being able to count it a little bit and kind of count eighth notes underneath it, and then you can sing it along with those eighth notes. And then you'll just start to hear that dig it, 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 So, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, one, two, three, four. That's the key to counting this song, this wonderful 11 8 jam that so many of us heard when we were growing up. I think that'll probably be enough for you to find your footing and get comfortable with this, but this is a really cool piece of music, and I wanted to point out another couple of things about it. For starters, there's the harmony. So, this is in C, but it doesn't start on a C major chord. This is more of a jazz thing, which is pretty common for Mario Kart soundtracks. There's a lot of killer jazz music, especially in the more recent Mario Kart soundtracks. In Mario Kart 8, there's some really smoking big band stuff that plays the uh, Mount Wario theme was always a favorite of mine some really great saxophone stuff in there actually back in 2014 I made this video uh, about the music for Mount Wario and the way that it changes dynamically as you go down the track and sort of builds along with the track as you go through it because it's not a track where you go you know in in multiple laps it's a sort of through composed track which matches then with the through composed piece of music that plays it's very proto strong songs it's sort of funny it was 2014 it's a video I don't talk in the video so it's just like captions trying to explain what's going on in the music probably would have worked better if I had uh, if I'd talked over it but anyways um, I'll put a link to that in the show notes if you want to watch it some really great music in Mario Kart 8 with a lot more live musicians in the studio
still remember when that fiddle solo came in the first time I was playing this. I was like losing my mind because the track was really cool and exciting. And then the music was so good. Anyways, I don't want to get sidetracked talking about Mario Kart 8. We're talking about Mario Kart 64 when there was great music on that soundtrack as well. The series has always had really great, really jazz-influenced music. And what's going on here harmonically is super jazzy. It's pretty cool. So there's this C pedal right going, and I've gone over this bass line, this kind of bass pedal a whole lot. But the harmony is kind of shifting. This is a really standard jazz thing. It starts with a kind of a sus chord. It's a little bit of a B flat over C thing that then resolves to C. So you're kind of going sus resolving to one, a very common move in jazz, and it gives improvisers a lot to work with. So they bounce around for a little while, these two chords over a C pedal, and then what should happen? But they go up and do the same thing up a fourth on an F chord. Now, long-time listeners of this show will know what kind of a tune it is that sits around on the one chord for a while and then transitions to the four chord before transitioning back to the one, and that is a blues. This song actually has a lot in common with the blues. It's pretty much just a one to a four back to one. There's a little turnaround that's mostly kind of a stop time thing. There isn't a super strong five chord, so I don't know if I would argue that this is technically a blues progression, but it's more of a blues than it is anything else. And that's probably why that one chord change that happens in this piece sounds familiar to you, because we're cruising along, cruising along on the one, and then suddenly... We go to the four chord in classic blues style. So just kind of a harmonic fun fact about this piece of music and another example of how the blues turns up everywhere. I mean, it's just everywhere. The blues is such a foundational part of music and you never know where you're going to hear something that's drawing from the blues. So last thing about the Mario Kart 64 results music that I kind of want to leave you with, Amy, and anyone else listening to this who's maybe like, okay, 11-8, I got it, 4, then 3, then 4, no problem. The thing I want to leave you with is the drum groove on this song because it is a tricky drum part, but once you get your head around it, it's also pretty fun to kind of groove along with it. So the basic drum groove goes So start by getting your head around that, and then one other thing that you're going to have to learn is that sometimes the snare gets changed up. The drum groove changes up the snare so that it's a little bit later, and instead of going doom doom chat doom doom chat doom doom to chat doom doom to chat, it goes doom doom chat doom doom chat doom 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 chat doom 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 chat. That second to last snare hit is displaced a little bit, and it happens usually at the tops of phrases, like when they go to the four chord. Just on that groove, the snare is displaced on that second-to-last snare hit. Right here. (laughs) Now, I'm guessing that a lot of you probably didn't even hear that when I was talking about it. This is fairly advanced and kind of out there. But Amy, you mentioned that you're a musician, and this is kind of the most advanced level you can learn this song on. So if you want to really challenge yourself, learn all the places where that groove slightly displaces that second to last snare hit, and then you'll really have this tune nailed. And every time you beat your friends in Mario Kart 64, you can get up and do a victory dance in perfect time with the music.
All right, next up, we've got a few questions about singing. The first one comes from Kyle. Kyle writes, "I'm a big fan of the song 'Dig' by Incubus. Yes, you could even say I dig it. Sorry. Anyway." Despite how many times I've listened to it, I seem to have trouble singing along with the chorus, as I can't figure out what the lead singer is doing to sing the word "another" and a couple other similar parts in the chorus. I don't consider myself to be that good of a singer, but it's frustrating not to be able to figure out this pitch. Any advice or insight into what's happening on the chorus and how I can better join in would be much appreciated. All right, well, let's listen to "Dig" by Incubus and let's see what Brandon Boyd is doing. Nice. All right. So that's dig off of the 2006 record "Light Grenades" from Incubus. Definitely going for a kind of a U2 thing there. And Brandon Boyd is going for his Bono register. This is pretty. This is pretty high up there. If you're singing along with us in the car, that must be a lot of fun. I can kind of see why you might have a hard time matching the pitch on this chorus because it's pretty straightforward in some ways, but it's a little bit unusual in others. And I think I can help you out. So the key thing to bear in mind is that there are two notes. When he sings, if I turn into another, when he hits another, he sings two notes and he kind of shifts notes in the middle of the word. So he hits a G sharp. That's the first note that he hits, and then he bends up to an A sharp, up a whole step, and then goes back to a G sharp. But it actually never resolves down to an F sharp, even though this song is in F sharp on that first word. So it's this kind of suspended sound. It winds up just being another. He kind of just sits there up on that G sharp, so you have to get that in your ear first before you sing it. He also sort of just rushes through the phrasing and has this kind of yeah, like energy to it. Another. He's sort of just putting this little like wrist flick of emphasis on the note. Another. So you kind of just have to think of it almost that way. It's like a record scratch in your voice to、so、just push it up a whole step really quick, and then crucially stay on that G sharp and don't resolve down to the F sharp at least on that word because he doesn't resolve down to the F sharp until the next phrase. You can hear it there when he sings covering. He actually resolves that down to an F sharp. Starts on a G sharp, covering, and then he resolves on that that F sharp, which is the tonic、um, in the in the key of this song. The song is in F sharp. So hopefully you're starting to hear it a little bit. That's kind of the thing to look for. This is a tricky one. I mean, I'm singing this in a really light, you know, kind of head voicey mix. If you belt it out like him, that's very high. You know, G sharp, A sharp. That's no joke for most male voices. So you're really belting it out there. You've got to kind of have it in your ear first. So I would say listen to it. If you play any piano, sit down at the piano and just try to hear that G sharp to the A sharp. The way that he's kind of Wing, he's kind of flinging the note up a whole step, just really quick, and、uh, you'll start to get it in your head. I think a little bit more, and then you'll be able to visualize it as you go in to sing it. Good luck. I hope you get more proficient at singing this one and matching those notes. Tyler 
Tyler writes, a couple of years ago I asked you about learning to sing, and you gave me two suggestions. First, you suggested getting a private teacher, and second, you pointed me towards the Ken Tamplin vocal exercises, which you said you had been doing and enjoying. And just side note, this is Kirk interjecting to Tyler. I still do do those Ken Tamplin exercises. I find them useful just as something to sing along with, though I also work with a private voice instructor and get a lot out of that, so my advice really hasn't changed from when I gave it to Tyler. So Tyler continues. Unfortunately, I've come back to Ken Tamplin's material a few times and I've never managed to stick with it, so I was wondering if you have any tips to help staying motivated. I really do want to learn how to sing, but I find the exercises are just so boring. I play instruments and I'm used to the idea and benefits of proper exercises versus just playing songs, but there's something about doing vowel sounds up and down the scales that I find way less enjoyable than practicing scales on guitar. Also, any tips on stage fright for just the idea of private lessons? I'm sure instructors get adults as beginners all the time, but there's something terrifying about the idea of walking into a private instructor with a voice that I hate. So that's a two-part question. Let's start with the first part. How do you make it more interesting or more fun to practice singing, especially if you're an instrumentalist and you're used to practicing musical instruments? So I guess my answer here is that you're going to have to adjust the way that you think about your vocal practice because the truth of the matter is singing is just very different from playing an instrument that, you know, is a physical object that exists outside of your body. There's certainly similarities and you have to take the same disciplined approach, you know, whether you're learning scales on guitar or saxophone or singing, but when it comes down to it, they're just very different processes, especially when you're learning to sing at first, because so much of that process is just rote repetition and retraining your body in things you've been doing your whole life, but probably doing in a way that's inefficient or doesn't quite work if you're really trying to sing songs. We all use our voices all the time, and the older we are when we start learning how to sing, the more ingrained bad habits we have. Trust me, I'm speaking from experience here. I have so many bad vocal habits, and a significant percentage of my time working on my voice has just been trying to reinstill new habits in a system that's been running for 40 years and has, as a result, developed quite a few bad habits. And the only way I can find to do that is just by singing scales every single day. I mean, at 11 o'clock, before I start recording, you know, when my voice is woken up a little bit, I sing the same vocal warm-up, the same routine of exercises, about 20-30 minutes every single day, usually because I'm warming my voice up to go on podcast and spend a bunch of hours in a vocal booth talking into a microphone and I need to kind of stretch it out but also because that's part of my vocal practice and that's how I'm kind of instilling these better habits in my voice. It's slow, frustrating, just painstaking work and it's nowhere near as fun as practicing riffs on guitar or practicing drums. I mean, it's a just totally different world and it helps me to just think of it as a very different kind of a challenge. Of course, you're never really going to learn how to sing if you're only singing those exercises. So you need to work on songs too, because you want to sing songs, right? That's why you're learning how to sing. And I actually find that for all of the pre-recorded exercise packets that I've done, you know, I bought Ken Tamplin's whole thing and he, he sends you a ton of audio, you know, recordings and videos. And there's videos of him working with private students, which are pretty cool because you can watch him actually work with someone. But it's a private student who has a very different voice probably from you. And you can see videos of him singing songs. He sounds great on them. But, like, it's not someone actually working with you in real time. So I find that that part of the work, learning songs, you know, working on repertoire, working on my own music... It's just not something that I can make a lot of progress on when I'm working with pre-recorded stuff or packages, you know, lessons that I bought from someone online. 
that's where my private teacher comes in. So that I think gets to the second part of your question, which is dealing with the stage fright, that sort of fear of the initial meeting that you're going to have with your private teacher. They're going to ask you to sing, and you're going to have to try to sing something for them. And that's a very vulnerable and very scary thing, at least in the abstract, because you know you're pretty vulnerable when you're singing, and this is someone you've never even met before who might be mean to you. You know, what if you go in and you sing, and they immediately just kick you out of the lesson and say you're a lost cause? Well, here. Here's the thing. That's not going to happen. I understand why you have that fear, and I obviously can't guarantee against every single vocal teacher in the world you could get unlucky. But the chances are, if you find somebody who teaches voice lessons and you know they've got reviews online and they've been doing it for a living, they're going to be very good at putting you at ease and helping you sound better pretty quickly, so that you can start to build the confidence that you need to sing even better. Because that's the thing. A lot of singing is psychological, and a lot of the challenges that we run into. With our voices, certainly the challenges that I run into with my voice, they're actually psychological as much as they are physiological. They're related to thinking you can't hit a note or getting really stressed and tense because you know, oh no, we're coming to that hard note in the song and I'm not going to be able to hit it. And that stuff can get in your way just as much as any physical limitations you may have with your voice. And anyone who's learned how to teach singing has also learned about this component of teaching people to sing. And certainly anyone who's working with beginners knows about it and how important it is not to. Psych people out and to help people feel more comfortable. So that's probably what you're going to be walking into when you walk into your first voice lesson. At least assuming that you're doing in-person voice lessons, you're going to spend some time warming up. You're going to get to know your teacher. You'll talk a little bit. Then you're going to sing some nice, really easy stuff because you need to warm your voice up before you can sing something more difficult. Then eventually you'll maybe try something harder, and your teacher will immediately be identifying things that you can work on. It's going to feel collaborative. It's going to be a nice experience. And then over time, you're going to kind of build a rapport with your teacher, and eventually, you'll be willing to make mistakes and crack notes and have weird sounds, and it can just be funny and something that you're working on together. You do have to take that first step. I understand you can kind of get in your head about it, psych yourself out, be like, "Oh my god, I just don't want to do it." You have to take the first step. You have to find the teacher and go take the lesson. And it can be helpful to have done some of those pre-recorded warm-ups to have at least a sense of your voice and some of the trouble areas that you're running into to know what you want to ask the teacher to work on when you go into that first lesson. But in the end. Just find a teacher and go in because you can trust that they're going to be there for you because that's their job. That's what you're paying them to do. They're going to be supportive and it's going to probably be a good experience. So good luck, Tyler. I really hope that you can take that plunge, that you can find a teacher because that's going to be the key, I think, to unlocking your voice and finding that next step that you want to take as a singer. Ramadu asks, "My question is about songs from musicals. For some reason, they always have a quality to them that makes me recognize them as a song from a musical. There's just something different about them compared with regular pop songs. Of course, this isn't always the case, but a lot of times it is. A recent example is 'Waiting on a Miracle' from Encanto. I hear that and I say, 'Yep, that sounds like a song from a musical.' So why is that?" Will stand on the side as you shine. I'm not fine. I'm not fine. I can't move the mountains. 
So there are a lot of reasons that a song from a musical sounds more like it's from a musical than, you know, something that's just going to be on an album, like a, like a regular pop song. So some of that is mix and production, some of that is songwriting, and some of that is singing. I guess I'll talk about each of those three things. Mix and production is an interesting one. You can really hear a difference in the mix between something that is from an original cast recording or from a Disney musical or a movie musical and something that was recorded just as a song to be played on the radio. Typically, when something is being recorded for a musical, there's a lot more space in the mix, and that's because you're listening to the song as it's sung by people who are moving through a space. That's true, certainly when you see a Broadway musical, and it's also true when you watch a movie musical. You're watching the people sing. When you watch West Side Story, you're seeing Tony and Maria on the fire escape as they sing, and their voices are placed in that space. So when you listen to the recording of that, that's sort of remixed sometimes for the album version, it's still conveying that space and you can still feel the voices kind of sitting in a bigger space. So just listen to the way that their voices sit in the mix and listen to the reverb and the sort of space that they're in. It's subtle, but you can hear that they're occupying a space in a way that doesn't quite feel like a radio pop song. Every thought I'll ever know, everywhere I go, you'll be. Of course, there's also the fact that this is this orchestral, very old-fashioned Broadway song, so it just doesn't really sound like something that you would hear, you know, on a, on a regular pop album. But it's really just focus on those vocals and focus on that mix and listen to the space that they're in. Good lord, Rachel Ziegler is so good. I'm guessing a lot of you have seen this 2021 West Side Story uh, remake, the Steven Spielberg version, but holy cow, I'd never seen her in anything because I gather she's basically never been in anything, but she is just an unbelievable singer, and we'll talk a lot more about vocal style in a moment here because that, I think, is the most interesting thing uh, that makes musicals sound like musicals, but just because I mentioned it up top, there's also just sort of a songwriting difference in the way that a song is written for a musical versus how it's written for the radio. There's a lot less repetition. There's usually a lot more words. There's kind of more plot going on. You just will hear things in the lyrics, in the verses, that you don't usually hear in pop songs. There's not like repeated refrains. There's not usually a lot of woe woes and, and parts with no lyrics. There's usually a density of lyrical information going on in a musical that just over time, the more you listen to the song, the more you'll be like, this just doesn't really sound like a pop song. I mean, there aren't really pop songs that have lyrics like Stephen Sondheim's lyrics. It's just a very different style of lyric writing. And that, I think, is just a consistent thing with a lot of musicals. You'll listen and just get way more information when you're listening. You've changed your daring. You're different in the woods. Granted, not even a lot of musicals sound like Stephen Sondheim musicals, but listen to how much is going on in the lyrics to this duet from Into the Woods. You're not the man who started, and much more open-hearted than I knew you to be. It takes two 
I thought one was enough. It's not true. It takes two. So there's that lyrical aspect as well. There is the mix here again. You can hear that space on the vocals. It sounds like they're on a stage. It took two of us. It takes care. It takes patience and fear and despair. Really, when it comes down to it, to me anyways, it's all about that vocal style, the way that they're singing, the way that they've placed their voices. It takes two. You've changed. So let's go more in depth on that vocal technique question because that I think is a very interesting part of this question. You can actually really hear the contrast in the two versions of Let It Go that were released on the soundtrack for Disney's Frozen. First there's the version that Adina Menzel sings in the movie, the definitive version of the song I would say. It's the version that I focused on in my episode about this song. Menzel is a veteran Broadway performer and this song is very much in the style of a Broadway musical despite having some elements that are a little closer to a pop song in terms of the production. And compare that with the other version of the song that was also included on the Frozen soundtrack, Demi Lovato's version, which is way more radio-ready, way more of a pop song performance. Now, obviously, this song is arranged very differently for Demi. It's got drums in there. It's just instrumentally much more of a pop song, and that's a really obvious difference. But there's also a difference in the style of singing that's going on, and that one, I think, Ranmadu, is more what you're asking about. Like, it's pretty obvious when there's just an orchestra playing behind someone versus a rock band, but there's also this sort of vocal, you know, this vocal characteristic that musical theater singing has that is also really noticeable, even if you're not totally sure what it is that you're hearing. So one of the most important concepts in singing is placement, and that means sort of where you're finding your resonance with your voice. So if you're very forward, you can be speaking totally through your nose, and you can be in a very forward placement where you're kind of putting your voice here, or you can be in a really deep placement and you can come from back here, or you can speak from up behind the soft palate, and you can put your whole voice up here and kind of almost go through the back of your skull instead of out through your mouth, and you can lower the register, and then you can get a very funny, though kind of backspacey voice. Or you can push way down into your fry, which can actually be really hard on your voice, so I don't recommend doing it. Or you can totally leave your throat out of the picture and get a super buzzy sound by just going straight through your nose. And those are all different placements of my voice. And, you know, I'm no expert here. I'm certainly not going to go start a musical theater production anytime soon. But the more I've learned about my voice, the more I've come to appreciate when I listen to professionals, I can kind of hear what they're doing. Now, there are all kinds of voices on Broadway, but there are definitely some dominant styles of singing, particularly for lead performers. And there's, you know, for better or for worse, there's this kind of default house style. And you really hear it a lot in Disney musicals in particular. And I think they've kind of reinforced this. There's almost like a reinforcing loop between some Broadway shows and Disney musicals where you'll hear the same style of singing over and over again until you just start to associate that style of singing with musicals. What it is is it's a very bright, very forward-placed style of singing. It's very clear. It's very easy to understand. I'll always think of the wonderful Kristen Chenoweth as the patron saint of this style of singing. Whenever I see someone less fortunate than I 
And let's face it, who isn't? Less fortunate than I, my tender heart tends to start to bleed. And when someone needs a makeover... On the male side of things, it's a very similar kind of an approach. It's very forward-placed, really brilliant and very bright, and also, like I said, very easy to understand. I'll always think of Andrew Rannells from the Book of Mormon. When he sings I Believe, he's almost doing a parody of a Broadway singer, and he's doing the voice 100%. Ever since I was a child, I tried to be the best. So what happened? My family and friends all said I was blessed. So what happened? It was supposed to be all so exciting to be teased. You can hear that forward placement, right? Ever since I was a child, I tried to be the best. So what happened? Leaves him in that perfect place to do that stage whisper. It was supposed to be all so exciting. It's that style of singing where your voice kind of floats forward and projects outward that's become very popular in Broadway productions. And you know who knows a thing or two about popular? Popular. I know about popular. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. Now, part of that popularity is just it's the dominant sound. People write songs with, you know, popular singers in mind, so it kind of winds up reinforcing itself. There's also a sort of character-based reason behind this, especially for female singers. A lot of female parts on Broadway and definitely in Disney movies are kind of ingenues or young dreamers, and it's definitely in the style vocally to allow a lot of breath in and a lot of expressiveness where you can kind of whisper some words, and it, it makes the singer sound vulnerable and young in a way that is effective, especially if you're actually kind of an older singer playing a very young character. To go back to Stephanie Beatriz, who's playing Mirabelle, Mirabelle is maybe 16 years old, Stephanie Beatriz is 40, and this is a classic voice actor trick, is to use this placement to make your voice sound a lot younger and to be able to play that kind of younger, more, you know, starry-eyed character. Still a part of the family, Madrigal, and I'm fine, I am totally fine. We'll stand on the side as you shine. This is a really established voice actor thing, but I mean, I got to know Stephanie Beatriz in her role on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, where she plays this super tough character, Rosa, who speaks completely differently than Mirabelle. He mislabeled the weapon like an idiot, and it almost got filed with the wrong case. He could have blown months of work. So you know, a pretty significant difference that all comes down to vocal placement. The same woman who plays that comically rough-and-tumble Brooklyn cop can also voice a young and vulnerable Disney protagonist. Don't be upset or mad at all. Don't feel regret or sad at all. And like I said, this kind of manipulation of your placement is really common. It's something that most actors have to learn. And actually, Diane Guerrero, who plays Isabella in Encanto, she's another actress who can do all kinds of cool things with her voice. I first saw her, I guess I first saw her on Orange is the New Black, but she's also on the show Doom Patrol, where she plays Jane, a character who actually becomes a whole bunch of different characters who all speak very differently. You know as well as I do that the only true healing you need is the recreator. Oh my gosh. I know who you are. You're Cyborg. And you are? Uh, baby doll, duh! I'm your biggest fan! I'm sorry, sir. Please don't hurt me, sir. I'm sorry, sir. Hammerhead has been relieved. The church was too... provocative. 
So obviously she's having a lot of fun with that role. It's always fun to get to play a whole bunch of different characters. But you can hear she's using her voice and her placement to get very different personalities out of each of those characters, despite the fact that, of course, it's all her voice. So when she sings Isabella's big song, What Else Can I Do?, she perfectly does that musical theater presentation with the lifted, masky resonance, and it really sounds like a song from a musical. I think there are some practical considerations as well for why this style of singing is popular in musicals. One, something I've mentioned a couple times, it's very easy to understand what people are saying when they're speaking very clearly in a very bright voice, and that's important in musicals because a lot of times plot information and sort of dense wordplay and the lyrics are really important because it's part of the story. You need to be able to understand what people are saying so you're going to get that very clear diction. Also, this style of singing really projects and that makes it easier to hear you know, large theater. You can hear a singer much more clearly if their placement is very bright and if their voice is really carrying and they carry out over the orchestra or over the the backing track. And that kind of ties into the other practical reason for singing like this. I think it's just easier to sing for a long period of time and to sing many nights in a row if you're singing in this way because it's a very efficient way of singing. You get a lot of volume without pushing your voice too hard. If you can really learn how to do it, and I'm definitely not an expert. I'm, you know, like I said, I can sing this style okay, at least to demonstrate it, but I can't get up into the upper register. I can't do the kind of things that these performers do where they will just nail every single note perfectly in tune, perfectly consistent every night performing six nights a week. That is really physically difficult and you're going to take every single advantage that you can get from a technical standpoint and a lot of that means figuring out the most efficient way to get the most bang for your buck from your voice and for most singers that's going to mean finding a really good mix that's right up there in your mask is what it's called right up there in the front that's very buzzy and bright that's easy to understand and that doesn't require you to use a lot of power in order to be heard Encanto is kind of interesting because it's the rare Disney musical that's had, I think, now two number one songs just off of the soundtrack, not the pop versions of them, you know, with pop singers, but the the original sort of musically sounding versions from the movie, those two songs being Surface Pressure and We Don't Talk About Bruno, which, yes, I'm aware that many of you would like me to talk about We Don't Talk About Bruno, and I know I haven't yet, but hopefully I will at some point because that is a pretty cool song. At any rate, the vocal styling is the big difference that I kind of wanted to highlight here. But like I said, there are production differences, there are mixed differences, and there are compositional differences. I mean, musical songs are just written in a really different way and also often recorded with very different instrumentation from the kind of thing that would be included on a pop album. So I'll close with one final example that I think really illuminates that vocal technique difference. So last year I had the vocal coach Eric Vitro come on the show, vocal coach to the stars. I think we can now say that Eric Vitro is a friend of Strong Songs, a wonderful guy. We had a really cool conversation. You should go listen to that episode. He has a podcast called Backstage Pass with Eric Vitro where he has his superstar clients come on and they talk about singing. And in his debut episode, he has Ariana Grande come on and they actually have this whole conversation 
conversation about Broadway-style singing versus pop singing, and she sort of laments that she doesn't get to sing in that style more since. Broadway style wouldn't really work for the kinds of pop songs that she sings, and she even demonstrates a little bit of that placement that I was talking you about. Know, I grew up singing theater, so of course that's where my heart is. I wish I got to do more of it. I wish I could go be on Broadway. I wish I could go sing more musical songs. That's like the easiest, most fun, most soaring, freeing, beautiful feeling ever is singing show tunes. That to me is like my heaven, but. Of course, like, you can't use that placement on a pop song either. You know what I mean? Like, you can't sing, like, been here all night. Like, you can't, like, <laughs> been here all day. And boy, got me walking side to side. Been here all night. So I certainly can't come up with a better demonstration than that, and that really is a big part of the reason that a song from a musical will sound different from a song from an album. So I hope that answered your question. This was kind of a fun thing to talk about. I know that we got a little bit more involved on this question, but it's a big topic. There's a lot to it, and just as a vocalist, I find this kind of thing very interesting. Josh writes, whenever I listen to Creed's song One on the album My Own Prison, there's an effect at the 3 minute 17 second point that, when I listen to it with headphones or earbuds, creates a sensation of pressure in my ears. Do you experience the same thing, and do you know why that feeling occurs? Alright, well let's listen to this excerpt. This is a cool example of an effect that I've talked about before, but it's a really pronounced one, so it's a good example for discussing it. Alright, here we go. Pretty weird, right? So what they're doing there is using phase cancellation to create the sensation that the audio is kind of getting these blacked out spots in your ears that are shifting from left to right. And there's a sort of a feeling like the audio is getting pulled away from you, almost like a black hole or something, which creates a very almost physical feeling of disorientation. Now, I've talked about phasers and phase cancellation on the show before. I talked about it in my episode about David Bowie when talking about the keyboard part on Starman, that sort of keyboard breakdown on that song. There's a really strong phaser used there. This is, I'm pretty sure they're just using a stereo phaser um, I always kind of can't tell the difference between phasers and flangers. I'm pretty sure this is a phaser, though, just because this sounds like phase cancellation. Basically, what that means is the phaser will take the audio signal and then duplicate the waveform and shift it in a way that creates a pretty cool physical effect on your eardrum. So think of a wave, you know, an audio wave is basically a waveform and it has peaks and valleys. Every single waveform ever recorded looks like a sort of a sine wave one way or another. If you zoom in on it enough, there's a peak and there's a valley. So a phaser duplicates the waveform and then offsets it so that all the peaks happen during the valleys and the valleys happen during the peaks, which leads to something called phase cancellation. So basically the peaks are up against the valleys and they're canceling one another out. And then the valley is up against the peak 
and that's also canceling the other one out. And as a result, you get these weird holes where you can hear the whole thing that's going on, but there's this pulsing feeling as though there's sort of the middle is being scooped out of it at various points, and then you can have it move according to an LFO. It gets more complicated, and this also starts to exceed my understanding of the physics of the situation. But basically, if you put a phaser on, like, the whole thing, I mean, this Creed track puts it on the drums, and I think on the guitar, a big stereo phaser on the drums, you go from a drum part that sounds like this... to a drum part that sounds like this. Pretty weird, right? Especially if you're listening with headphones. So yeah, that's what I hear going on on that Creed song is just some phase cancellation. And this is an effect that you'll hear every now and then. Uh, it was pretty big in the 70s. People used phasers and flangers to get those sort of sweeping, you know, sounds that add a little bit of motion to the mix. And if you do it to the whole drum set and to the guitars the way they do on this Creed record, you get something that sounds pretty wild, especially if you're listening on headphones. Tony writes, we know about a number of famous left-handed guitarists, but does left versus right-handedness influence the way other instruments are played or how difficult they are to play? This is a fun question that I'm going to say that I'm answering from the perspective of a right-handed person, so I don't have first-hand experience of this, though I know plenty of left-handed musicians, and I play enough instruments that I can kind of imagine how it would be if my dominant hand were switched. Now, I think that left-handed guitar playing is very interesting, like Jimi Hendrix is the most famous example of this. If you watch Jimi playing, he plays his guitar basically upside down. He plays a right-handed guitar, but tuned the other way so that he can fret with his right hand and strum pick with his left hand, which is, you know, the opposite from how right-handed players typically play. And while that obviously worked for him, I know that there are left-handed players who just play the same way that right-handed players play because, yeah, I mean, I guess you could argue in his case, maybe he felt more natural with his left hand doing all the picking and his right hand doing the fretting. But I mean, when I'm playing guitar, both of my hands really have have to be on their game. It's not like one is easier or, you know, easier for my dominant hand to take over than the other. It just sort of, I just learned how to play it with my left hand on the neck and my right hand picking the strings. Now, I know there are left-handed versions of wind instruments like the saxophone or the flute, these other instruments that I play, and I don't know that you would really want to deal with that. I mean, if you're playing saxophone, your left and your right hand both have a whole lot to do. I mean, on saxophone, the left hand has more to do probably than the right hand because it has the octave key, it has some palm keys to work with. There's a lot going on in the left hand on the saxophonist, and I never felt like that was a problem for me as a right-handed saxophonist. I'm no master concert pianist, but my understanding of playing piano is that both of your hands have to be completely capable of doing just about anything, and a lot of beginning piano practice is just getting your not-dominant hand to catch up with your dominant hand. I mean, I just practice a lot of stuff just playing arpeggios with my left hand, trying to play the same thing with the same fluidity that I can do it with my right hand because, you know, just because the treble is over on the right doesn't mean you're not going to be playing it with both hands. The last instrument that comes to mind here is one where sometimes being left-handed does lead to a slightly different setup, and that's the drums. Most drummers that I know can do a lot of stuff with their off hand and with their dominant hand, but you will see, especially in rock and jazz drumming, um, open-handed drumming is a little more common. 
I think, among left-handed players. And that's where, you know, typically if a right-handed player is playing drums, they'll be playing the hi-hat with their right hand and the snare drum with their left hand, which means the hi-hat is actually over on the left and the snare drum is to the right of the hi-hat. So they're kind of crossing one another. Your right stick is going above your left stick, which is playing the snare drum. In open-handed drumming, you actually go the other way. And so your sticks are just open. The left hand is playing the hi-hat on the left. The right hand is playing the snare drum on the right. And it actually makes more sense. So I first noticed left-handed drummers doing this, but actually there's an increasing, you know, an increasingly popular school of thought that open-handed drumming is just better and everyone should learn to play that way because it's more efficient. It allows for a lot more fluidity on the instrument. And I, I don't know if I'll ever learn open-handed drumming, but that again is just something that's not even exclusive to being left-handed. It's just a style of drumming. And really, once you've mastered the instrument, you can do everything with both hands. So Tony, I hope that sort of answers your question, though like I said, this is just my perspective as a right-handed person, and I'm kind of not the person to be asking about what it's like to play as a left-handed person. So if you are a left-handed musician and you have any thoughts on the experience or on what it's like to learn various instruments that you'd like to share, by all means, write in. I'd love to hear from you. Listeners at strongsongspodcast.com. Anna writes in with something that I just thought was cool and wanted to share. She writes, I was recently recommended Strong Songs and am now listening to old episodes. In one Q&A, you talked about Marty McFly telling the band to play in B, though the song is actually in B-flat. All right, guys, uh, listen to the blues riff in B. Watch me for the changes and try and keep up, okay? Anna continues, I thought it was interesting that the mistake is between these two notes. In German notation, the note usually called B, a semitone down from C, is called H, and the note usually called B flat, a whole tone down from C, is called B. So the natural notes are C, D, E, F, G, A, H. So if the movie was taking place in Germany or Poland, where I'm from since we also use this notation, then when the band was told to play in B, they would correctly start playing in the key that the song is performed in. Of course, that is not the case in the movie, but still, this difference in the naming actually causes a lot of confusion among students, since a lot of the literature and websites with chords in theory use B and B-flat, but schools here still insist on teaching B and H. Where this difference comes from is another matter I've heard it might have been a spelling mistake by some medieval scribe, but who knows. So thank you, Anna, for writing in and sharing that. I had no idea about that. I think it's so interesting. I used to joke about things being in the key of H, but I didn't know that in some parts of the world things really are in the key of H. So Anna, thanks for writing in and sharing that. So we're almost out of time, but before we go, listener Tim wrote in with a shout-out that I wanted to share on the show. Tim writes, You've done a great job over the years of periodically calling out high school band directors for their great work helping build a lifelong love of making music in their students. So I wanted to shout out our band director here in Austin, Travis Pollard. Mr. Pollard is one of the great ones. He's selfless, working effectively two to three jobs as band director and fine arts chair for our school. During musicals, football season, competitions, he can be seen at school from sunup to sundown, making it happen. It never dampens his enthusiasm. He is consistently a favorite to all the kids, from when he first gets them in fifth and sixth grade to when they graduate out. So if you could see fit to shout out the one, the only, the man, the myth, the legend, Travis Pollard, 
I think his legion of fans would appreciate it. So hey, Travis Pollard, a shout out to you. And while I don't do individual shout outs on this show that often, I wanted to include this one just because Tim's description of Mr. Pollard sounds so much like my band director, Jana Stockhouse, who I actually interviewed on the show back in year one, and also like so many other band directors that so many of us have had or been lucky to have if we did have a great band director. There's just nothing else like that. So really, this is a shout out for Travis Pollard, but this is also a shout out for all of the band teachers out there, all of the band directors, everyone who's working from sunup to sundown to impart that love of music in your students. You're doing important work. And while I know you know that, I still felt like it was worth taking a moment to recognize it on the show. That'll do it for this latest Q&A episode. Thanks to everyone who's written in with questions. And as always, you can send more questions for future Q&A episodes to listeners at strongsongspodcast.com. This was a lot of fun. It was fun to take a little bit more time on a couple of questions than I normally do. And you never know when I'll do that. So if you send in a question, it might get answered on the show. It might even get a big, long segment where I go probably too in-depth about the drumming on a Mario Kart track or talking about vocal placement just because I think it's interesting. This show will always just be things that I happen to think are interesting. I'm able to make it completely the way I want to make it, and that's thanks to all of you. Thank you all so much for supporting this show. You know, there are so many things I don't have to deal with because this show is entirely Patreon-funded. Like, I don't have to worry about ads, which is so nice. I don't have to spend a bunch of time trying to run down partnerships. I can just focus all of my energy on making this show as good as I want it to be. And that's totally possible because the show is funded by all of you. So thank you so much for supporting the show. And if you want to help me keep doing it, go to patreon.com slash strong songs. And if you do, you'll get access to an increasing number of bonus mini-sodes and a whole bonus RSS feed where you can listen to extra stuff about each of the songs that I've been talking about on the show this year. We got bonuses about the cars, the Beatles, lots more stuff. All right, this episode's outro soloist is the great Portland trombonist Kyle Molitor, T-Bone Molitor. So stick around for Kyle, and I will be back in two weeks with more strong songs. Mm-hmm.